Hello, this is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. Catholic Baltimore is a weekly radio program hosted by the Archdiocese of Baltimore, airing each Sunday following the broadcast of the Radio Mass of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic radio partners for sharing with us some of the content in this program and for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to the Archdiocese of Baltimore every Sunday. Caution! Some material in this broadcast contains mature content and may be unsuitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. This is Chris Dunty of the Catholic Review. With us today on Catholic Baltimore is Dr. Thomas Plant to talk about some misconceptions about clergy sexual abuse. Thomas Plant is a professor of psychology and, by courtesy, religious studies at Santa Clara University, and he directs the Applied Spirituality Institute. He's also an adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. He recently served as vice chairman of the National Review Board for the Protection of Children and Youth for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. He has authored, co-authored, edited, or co-edited 23 books, including several books on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and books on living ethically. He has evaluated or treated more than 900 clerics or clerical applicants in his Menlo Park, California private practice, including numerous sex abuse victims and offenders. Time Magazine referred to him in an April 2002 cover story as one of three leading American Catholics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Plant. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. In a recent piece published by Psychology Today, you addressed some of the misconceptions or things that are misunderstood about child sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. I want to start by acknowledging, as you do, that any abuse of a child, especially sexual abuse, is abhorrent and criminal. But I think many people have the perception that all Catholic priests are molesters and that this is just a Catholic problem. Is there any empirical evidence that Catholic priests in general are more likely to be abusers than others in similar positions of authority over children, coaches, teachers, ministers of other faiths? Have you seen that? Yeah, and this is what's uh, one of the many things that is so problematic and really upsetting about news reports about this problem is that unfortunately good quality research data often doesn't get out there into the popular press, no matter how much we talk about it and so forth. If it doesn't fit a certain narrative, it doesn't seem to get out there. And we have good quality empirical data. We know that Catholic priests, according to the John Jay study, as well as some other studies that have been done during the last half of the 20th century or so, had an abuse rate of approximately 4%. So about 4% of of, uh, clerics in the Catholic Church had credible accusations of sexual victimization with children or minors. If we look at other uh, groups, public school teachers, for example, a a study by the Department of Education found that those numbers were closer to 5 to 7%. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association uh, reports that about 5% of men can be expected to be um, pedophiles. And we have did a study with the Anglican Church um, and found, even though it was a small-scale study, uh, we found also similar numbers around 4%. So no matter how you slice it, anytime men have access to children in positions of authority, like teachers and coaches and clerics and so forth, 
you're going to probably expect a certain percentage, probably clustering somewhere in the neighborhood of 5%, who are going to victimize uh, children in, in that way. Uh, so Catholics are really not unique in that way, uh, although the press um, seems to suggest otherwise, the data um, uh, does not. And this kind of thing happens in families as well, right? Not just in institutional settings, right? Oh, of course. In fact, the vast majority of sex offending that goes on happens in families. So we know that uh, the most likely candidate to be uh, sexually abusing a child is a family member, um, most notably a stepfather tends to be number one, uh, a father, an older brother, uncle, cousin, and so forth. And mm-hmm. that about 80% of all sex offending uh, occurrences uh, happen to someone very close to the child, like, you know, a relative in the home. And uh, we know that we don't know exactly how many kids have been sexually abused, but research over the last half, uh, for the last several decades, have suggested that if you ask women, were you sexually violated as a child, by an adult, believe it or not, you get almost about a third of women will say yes to that. And um, if you ask men the same question, you get somewhere in the ballpark of about 15% or so, depending on the study. So sadly and tragically, we know that sex offending uh, is, is um, remarkably common. Now, the good news, though, is starting in the early 1980s, these numbers started to, to tank. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's due not only in the church, but also um, nationally. And so there's a variety of reasons for that, but uh, these numbers are down. So that's the real good news, if there is any good news on this topic. Mm-hmm. And none of that's to excuse the behavior of these people. It's just to put it in context that this is not specifically a Catholic problem. Oh, God, no, 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 of course not. So that's the thing that people are misled by. Uh, the data is very clear that sexual abuse of kids, tragically and very sadly, is, is fairly common. And that this has been true probably since the dawn of time. Although these numbers are going down, it's, it's still fairly common. And it's fa- common uh, most notably in the home, in any kind of institutional environment where people have ready access to kids and authority over kids, whether that be public or private schools or, co- uh, or, or athletics or theater or dance or music or, or any, any place where kids are uh, alone with adults with authority. And the Catholics are really um, no different. Uh, and in fact, the data, the empirical data, suggests that they're less likely uh, to be abusers than many other groups. And uh, certainly since uh, the early to mid-1980s, uh, again, those numbers have tanked. And certainly after the Dallas Charter, uh, they've really tanked to a trickle. You know, people don't understand that. They read the press, they read about the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and say, oh my goodness, this is, this is just uh, an ongoing problem. And uh, obviously any abuse of kids is, is horrific and we need to do everything we can to plug holes to make sure that our policies and procedures are, are, are in place so that kids are protected. I mean, everyone would agree with that. And, and, the, church, and the church has made great strides in that area. Sure, there's holes that could be plugged. But if you look at the actual hard data, uh, it's, uh, it's really quite impressive in terms of what the numbers used to look like versus what the numbers look like today. And so from your research and experience, is sexual abuse by Catholic clergy linked to the requirement of celibacy, which priests promise, or, or homosexuality, homosexual inclination? 
No, I mean, we would say these are red herrings uh, for a variety of reasons. First off, uh, in terms of the celibacy issue, um, if priests are not more more likely to be sex offenders than clerics and other religious traditions, coaches, uh, parents, and so forth, then uh, celibacy isn't uh, causing the problem. Secondly, a lot of people are celibate, regardless if they're in religious life or not. You know, a lot of people just don't have a partner, um, or they either don't want to have a partner, they can't find a partner. There's a lot of people, even people in marriages who may have, you know, not so nice marriages or whatever, or not having sex. That doesn't make them pedophiles or turn to children for sexual gratification. It might, they may turn to consenting adults for sexual gratification, or they may turn to pornography, or they may turn to a lot of things, but they're not going to necessarily turn to kids. That's a whole different thing. So we don't think mm-hmm. celibacy really is the, is the issue. And then in terms of homosexuality, sadly, people often want to blame homosexuals for this problem uh, because of who they are. Um, but we know research is very clear here as well, sexual or orientation by itself isn't a risk factor for pedophilia. So people will point to the fact that 80% of victims in the church are male and say, well, see, that makes it a homosexual problem. But they don't understand the psychopathology of pedophilia. Um, They don't understand that research has found that clergy offenders are generally what we call situational generalists, which means they're going to abuse whatever they can find. Mm-hmm. And that was made clear in the uh, in the John Jay reports. That's been clear in research that you know I've done, other people have done. Is that you know they're not thinking, oh, I want to abuse a boy because I'm I'm gay. Uh, they're thinking I have access and trust with boys, and this will do over time. You know, for the most part, priests have had more trust and connection with boys, uh, particularly. Back in the day, when we had mm-hmm. all-boy schools and we had minor seminaries and we had all-boy altar boys and so forth, and so really it's an issue of being what's available um, as opposed to targeting. Uh, and so that speaks more to uh, a psychological or sexual aberration rather than to the the fact that all priests are like this. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, this just speaks to the psychopathology of pedophilia. So we we would say that homosexuality, heterosexuality, or whatever, you know, it, it, that's a red herring. It's a separate issue. I mean, we could, you know, the church, of course, has its points of view about homosexuality, and they have issues. The Vatican had an instruction in 2005 about uh, deep, what they call deep-seated homosexuality, uh, and and how uh, people shouldn't necessarily be ordained if they have deep-seated homosexuality. And people can argue about all that. But um, to think that just because someone's homosexual, that they're at high risk of sexually violating a child is not following the data. Mm -hmm. And we've just got a little bit of time before the break, but you mentioned the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People that was Mm -hmm. approved by the bishops in 2002. Has that had an impact on the incidence of child sexual abuse in the church? Well, you know, the the Dallas Charter is a great instrument. The Dallas Charter provides policies and procedures for for dealing with folks who have uh, accusations of, of abuse and and to that if they have any credible accusations for the rest of their life, they are pulled from ministry and have a, a life of prayer and penance. 
And uh, it's the Dallas Charter seems to be working. Now, um, since the Dallas Charter came into play, uh, the incidents of abuse are really down to a trickle. Now, that's due to a variety of reasons, not just the Dallas Charter. That mm-hmm. includes uh, um, issues around attention. Now, there's a spotlight or attention on this problem. Uh, other policies and procedures in place. Abuse was going down to begin with. You know, there's a lot of factors. But the Dallas Charter is a pretty darn good state-of-the-art instrument that actually other religious groups and even secular groups have turned to and have looked at and have tried to use some of the policies and procedures in their organizations, too. We've collaborated with all sorts of organizations together, you know, Boy Scouts, uh, Boys Club and Girl Club of America, the U.S. Olympic Committee, law enforcement, to basically come up with best practices. And that's what the Dallas Charter ultimately is all about, is trying to get to best practices. Um, And I think it's working. Excellent. Well, after the break, we're going to talk some more with Dr. Thomas Plant, psychologist and author. This is Chris Gunty, and you're listening to Catholic Baltimore. News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world from the newsroom of the Catholic Review. Pope Francis made the first ever papal visit to the Arabian Peninsula, arriving in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates February 3rd, in an officially Muslim nation where Christians are welcomed as guest workers and free to worship, Pope Francis urged leaders of the world's main religions to embrace a broader vision of freedom, justice, tolerance, and peace. Addressing the interreligious human fraternity meeting in Abu Dhabi February 4th, Pope Francis said all those who believe in one God also must believe that all people are their brothers and sisters and demonstrate that belief in the way they treat others, especially minorities and the poor. The Human Fraternity Meeting, which brought together some 700 religious leaders from Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Sikh, Hindu, and other religious communities, was a centerpiece of Pope Francis's visit. The meeting was sponsored by the Abu Dhabi-based International Muslim Council of Elders and was promoted as a key part of the UAE's Declaration of 2019 as the Year of Tolerance. At a Mass February 5th, with tens of thousands of Catholics living in the UAE, Pope Francis urged them to be meek, peaceful, and express their Christian identity by loving others. From the newsroom of the Catholic Review, this is Christopher Gunty. Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, The Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have The Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to the Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android. And follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today in print and online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. For 143 years, New Cathedral Cemetery has served the needs of the Catholic community of Baltimore and Central Maryland. 
Duke Cathedral is the only cemetery owned by the Archdiocese of Baltimore and is the final resting place for many religious orders and famous citizens. 125 acres of rolling hills, trees, and beautiful monuments, the cemetery is an oasis of peace and tranquility and is located off Edmondson Avenue just outside of Catonsville. Duke Cathedral is dedicated to the task of tending to the mortal remains of our dearly departed and has many more years of available space. If you are in need of a burial site, vault, monument, or marker, or just a respectful location to place your cremated loved ones, our counselors will help you through this process and make sure the wishes of you and your loved ones are honored. Visit us online at newcathedralcemetery.org, like us on Facebook at New Cathedral Cemetery Bonnie Bray, or call 410-566-7770. You are listening to Catholic Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM. We're back on Catholic Baltimore talking with Dr. Thomas Plant, professor of psychology at Santa Clara University in California and a prolific author. In addition to the research on sexual abuse, about which we spoke in the first part of the show, Dr. Plant has also written extensively on the subject of ethics, that is, the moral principles that govern a person's behavior, including the 2004 book, Do the Right Thing, Living Ethically in an Unethical World. In the years since you wrote that book, Dr. Plant, has the world gotten more ethical or less ethical? Oh, my goodness. Sometimes you feel like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, to be frank. Uh, you know, it just seems like the world is a mess. I mean, all you have to do is read the newspapers and the uh, television news, and, and, and it just seems like people are behaving so badly out there. And probably they've behaved badly uh, for, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of years. Millennia. <laughs> millennia. But it just seems that any time you read the news, you just get this, you know, depressive feel that, geez, what is wrong? wrong with people out there. So this is, I think things are, are, are not, not good. <laughs> the state of our culture does not seem to be good when it comes to ethics. Why is it so hard for some people to do the right thing? You know, it's a great question, and I think there's a variety of reasons for that. I mean, for one issue has to do with um, are they getting adequate formation and training and modeling for good ethics? You know, uh, we we need to take that more seriously. One of the things I'm proud of here at Santa Clara University here in California, Jesuit Catholic School, is that every student, regardless of academic major, has to take an applied ethics course uh, before they graduate. Graduate, and uh, I teach one of those courses in the psychology department, and I think this is really key. I, I tend to think that this is the kind of thing that we, we really need to be doing early on in people's education and keep reinforcing it throughout their education. Not that that's going to necessarily cure all ills, but it certainly helps. And we have to uh, also find strategies to reinforce good ethics. Uh, we have to find strategies to um, support it as institutions and so forth. And here at our university, we have uh, what's called the Markula Center for Applied Ethics, which, believe it or not, is apparently the largest ethics center in the world. We do a lot of collaborative work with local uh, business and, and uh, uh, hospitals and clinics and so forth to try to support good ethics. As you work with college students these days, what are the challenges in teaching ethics to this digital generation? Is it different from a decade or two ago? Well, I think it is uh, different because there's some technologies and points of view out there that weren't uh, with us maybe in the past. 
several decades ago, uh, or uh, we didn't have social media, for example, and how people behave on social media, how they absorb information and so forth, a lot of that's new. Uh, that just what didn't exist before the mid-2000s. And Is it a so, problem that there's less filters out there if you're commenting on social media, if you're doing things immediate, whether you're looking on Tinder for a date or those kinds of things? Is it the fact that there are fewer filters and fewer chances to think about what you're doing? Does that have a factor? Yeah, I think that is a factor, and I think there's fewer um, barriers to your impulse control. A good example, a lot of people struggle with pornography, for example, and an awful lot of people have that tr- problem. And it's so easy because they can just hop on the computer and for you know, with a few clicks of their mouse, uh, they can uh, engage in pornography that can be very challenging to stop engaging with. And I've treated a lot of people in my private practice, including clerics, that have had problems with pornography. Now, in the old days, if you were interested in pornography, you know, you had to drive to a seedy part of town and go to a, a, a place where you might be spotted and you have to, you know, buy a magazine or something like that uh, behind the counter. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of barriers to that. Well, nowadays, in the privacy of not only your own home, but your own, you know, computer and phone, uh, you, can, you can engage with pornography wherever you have Wi-Fi connection. And so, um, so that's a good example where we used to have barriers in place and we don't anymore. Um, if people wanted to, you know, act obnoxiously online, uh, they can do that. Uh, in the old days, you really didn't have the ability to do that. It's gotten so bad that many media outlets, mainline media outlets, have eliminated the comment section of their articles. I've had to do that myself on my, many of my Psychology Today posts that involve the Catholic Church because often people um, just uh, froth at the mouth with their anger and upset about the Catholic Church. And if you, if you post anything about the Catholic Church, sadly and tragically, you'll get some people that'll just uh, kind of go off on it. So I've had to disable comment sections on uh, many of my um, articles that have to do with the church. Mm-hmm. You have to practice ethical decision-making in small things so that when the big questions come along, you're ready for that, you're, you're ready to make an ethical decision? Oh, yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, I always tell my students uh, that, you know, we're making ethical choices every single day, every probably hour of every day, uh, whether we know it or not, and whether we're being intentional about it or not. That little little compromises today result in big compromises tomorrow. Um, and so this is a very important, like, how we are in the world uh, in small ways and big ways, uh, how we act on the freeway, you know, how we act uh, in public, uh, how we interact uh, with everyone out there, including, you know, not only uh, uh, people of means and people of authority, but the, the uh, but people who don't have much means or authority, how we treat the poor and the marginalized or those who have little uh, and those who have much. It all is a reflection on who we are as human beings and and how we want to live in the world, and I uh, try to help students uh, see the ethical decisions that they're making basically every hour of the day. Will living an ethical life automatically bring me more peace, more satisfaction, more success? 
I think at the end of the day, it does. I think, it, it, you know, even for selfish reasons or egoism reasons, living a, a, an ethical life gives the kind of peace of mind that uh, that I think we all want. It helps us sleep at night. So, you know, I, I always joke that when people ask me about things, I say, look, I have no secrets. I'm, I'm totally transparent. I had a moment just a, a few months ago where I got a, a letter in the mail, and I thought this was so funny because it, the letter said, you know, we know about your secrets and unless you give us seven thousand dollars in bitcoin um, we're going to tell your wife your secrets and we're going to tell your neighbor your secrets and i thought it was so funny because i have no secrets my wife and i have been been together we've been together for about 35 36 years uh i showed it to her she started to crack up and i thought this you know i you know i can sleep at night you know i have nothing to hide and so even from a from a selfish egoism point of view I think doing the right thing, living an ethical life, uh, reaps those benefits. Sure, sometimes there's costs involved. You know, sometimes when you, uh, as they say, speak truth to power, or as, as, as you, uh, you know, if you're a whistleblower at your company or what have you, you know, you might get victimized, and uh, that's not going to feel good. So one has to realize that sometimes there's a cost. But uh, I guess at the end of the day, I would say the cost is, is worth it to do the right mm-hmm. thing and to live a life where you don't have to worry about some letter coming in the mail saying they're going to spill your secrets. Well, and it sounds like, you know, you're living an ethical and transparent life saved you at least $7,000. So there's, there's that. <laughs> That's right. And I wouldn't know how to use Bitcoin anyways. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. We've been talking today with Dr. Thomas Plant, a psychology professor at Santa Clara University in California and a prolific author. We've been talking to him about making ethical choices. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Plant. Well, it's a privilege and great to be with you. Thank you. This is Christopher Gundy of the Catholic Review. Thanks for spending part of your day listening to Catholic Baltimore. Life can be hard, and at times we feel overwhelmed and alone. When faced with problems, know that there is a group of Catholics who are part of the prayer ministry of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, waiting to lift you and your needs to God in prayer. This ministry is comprised of men and women, young and old, religious and lay, from every ethnic and cultural background. They pray as individuals and in groups, in homes and meeting spaces throughout Baltimore. Like you, they are people who have suffered the same hurts, fears, pains, sickness, loss, and everyday burdens. Learn more about this ministry by visiting our website at www.archbalt.org. If you are in need of prayer, send your prayer request to prayers at archbalt.org or by phone to 410-547-5517. Would you like to volunteer to be a part of the ministry? Prayer ministers are always needed. Please call or email our coordinator, who would be happy to speak with you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless us and keep us always in his love.